Greetings, listeners. Welcome to the Midnight Myth Time Machine. We're publishing our back catalog week by week to make it available on your favorite podcast platforms. What you're about to hear is episode eight, Destiny's Child, which originally aired in March of 2017. In this episode, we analyzed works from myth, literature, cinema, and theater that revolve around questions of destiny and prophecy. From Oedipus Rex to Shakespeare's Scottish play to the Harry Potter series. So hop in the time machine with us and enjoy episode eight, Destiny's Child. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Myth episode eight: Destiny's Child. Destiny's Child. Uh, we're going to now talk about music. Beyonce. Psych. We're not talking about music at all today. We're not. Oh, I should throw out all of my research then. Yeah, we're we're still we're going to stay with stories and story themes. So we're going to build a little bit off of what we started last week. Yeah. Yeah. Our conversation with the Matrix started with some fundamental questions, such as what is truth? How do we get to the nature of reality? What is real and uh, how can a story in particular, an allegory, uh, help us confront that that and confront those issues? Beautiful. Yeah. And we uh, we decided instead of digging deeper into that, which is a, you know, a rabbit hole we could go down for days, but we'd love to kind of start that as a springboard. Uh, instead of going further down into the truth, we decided to explore another element that is present in the Matrix and throughout uh, storytelling uh, for centuries for generations and that is the question of is there free will is the universe determined by a force of destiny a force of fate or do our choices affect our uh our our destinies ourselves do we create our own destiny and that's a question we'd love to explore with a few really classic examples tonight yeah and if you really think about it at some point I think all of us have wondered, are my choices really my own? Um, and you've had to kind of work through these philosophical problems. And I think storytelling and in particular mythology, literature, has really done a good job showing us this, this philosophical conundrum that's, I think, fundamental to human existence and shown us it in different ways so we're going to talk about, I think we've narrowed down three specific stories. We might throw some boomerangs in there here yeah. and there. And for and those of you just tuning in, a midnight myth boomerang is when we just call, come up with something off the fly. 
Yeah, uh, really, it's uh, it's a curveball, but we call it a boomerang because that's just what happened. Yeah, because I said that because we were drinking and recording a podcast, and I I goofed. Yeah, and then you throw it out, and somebody throws it right back. So Absolutely, it's a boomerang. It totally works. It's, it's a midnight myth boomerang. So yeah, um, the three stories that we want to talk about, we're gonna go, we're gonna go back to ancient Greece, and we're yeah. gonna talk about. There was a dude named Sophocles, and he wrote a bunch of tragic Greek plays. Right. Uh, one of which, if you took a liberal arts education in college, I'm sure you had to read, was Oedipus. Yeah, Oedipus Rex uh, is the play. Oedipus the King, but Oedipus the character uh, recurs through a couple of his plays and is really a, a, an example that we've seen reverberate through time and through uh, not only storytelling but psychology. And I should specify tonight, we're talking about fate and we're talking about destiny, but very specifically, we chose stories that include prophecy uh, because it is that very tangible example of your universe is governed by fate. But the stories that we're going to talk about tonight really are going to take a few different points of view when it comes to the interpretation of prophecy. So, yeah, let's dig in. Let's get down to yeah, and down a, to Oedipus. A few quick things just to mention about and why we chose this. Uh, ancient Greece was the forefront of developing storytelling as, a, as an art form. Previous to ancient Greece, in particular in the way that it is what we would consider westernized, so stories that still resonate with us today, previous to that, stories were really done to hand down knowledge, remember uh, important cultural norms, remember important events. Um, it was Greece that kind of broke and that sort of academic mold is called mythopoetic society, which literally means a society whose knowledge systems are based on mythology and poetry mm, mm-hmm. and not knowledge and art. And ancient Greece was kind of, you know, wrestling mankind or humankind, I should say, out of the mythopoetic. And part of that meant a creation of art for the sake of art. Right. And this was really when we saw the rise of theater and performance uh, as an art form and something that could be patronized. Uh, and Oedipus is a really classic and, and wonderful example of Greek tragedy on stage. Uh, and there are a lot of uh, norms that, that really come out of that tradition uh, that we'll, we'll definitely talk about a little bit tonight. Yeah. And whether you've taken Psychology 101 or Literature 101, you probably know Oedipus. There is a prophecy that he would uh, kill his father and marry his mother. Gross. And I believe, if I remember correctly, it was from an oracle. I believe it's actually the Oracle at Delphi. The Oracle he Delphi. He visits the Oracle at Delphi. Have we, have we talked about that? We have not. Before? Okay. No, and she's the Oracle of Apollo, correct? Yeah, so the Oracle at Delphi, very real thing, just a brief history lesson. Uh, God, uh, Apollo, which is commonly believed to be the god of the sun, is actually not the god of the mm-mm, sun. That's mm-mm. Helios. Um, that's a kind Helios of a misnomer. Helios is the sun, right? Yes. Yeah. Helios is, in fact, the sun, and hence is the god of the sun. Uh, Apollo was the god of prophecy. He was the god of archery. He is a, he's a god of music. Yeah, he's a, an arts patron. And in this one place in Greece, still there today, called Delphi, was an oracle. And there was a priestess called a Pythia. Right. And her job, people would go to her, and she would tell them their fortunes. She would interpret the will of Apollo, who is all-seeing. And the reason he gets, Apollo, gets confused with a sun god is because all-seeing, the sun is all-seeing, 
And so when Apollo was worshipped, he was sometimes sacrificed to iconography of him as a solar disc. Yeah, I was going to say there's a lot of symbology and a lot of uh, imagery that links Apollo to the sun and to light. Right. And so the uh, oracles were hugely important in the ancient uh, world, in both the ancient Near East and the ancient Mediterranean and the ancient Roman world. Um, You know, people would go and they would pay and an oracle would then uh, interpret the will of the gods. So for whatever reason, the Pythia had the ability, uh, was believed to have the ability to see the future and would often speak these very cryptic and very loosely structured uh, prophecies. Sometimes, though, they'd be incredibly specific. Right. And in the case of Oedipus, they went to the oracle And if you were wealthy in the ancient world, you would go to the most powerful oracle that you could afford. And if you're really rich, you go to Delphi and you would go and they would then tell you your fortune. Just to give another quick history lesson, um, there was the oracle at Delphi pronounced that Alexander the Great would conquer the world, for example. Nice. Yeah. What's great about that little um, history rewind that we get there is we know already starting to talk about Oedipus that this is a society that is predicated upon a belief that you can know the future and that there are some who have access to the uh, the preordained deterministic path of your life. Uh, and so that's going to suffuse that storytelling as we go forward. In other words, uh, just to, to put it in, in simpler terms, your life is not your own if you believe that. It's fates, it's destinies. And Oedipus has a destiny, and that destiny is foretold. And though great pains are made in that story to have him, you know, not carry out this destiny, it's irrelevant. Right. He ends up, you know, uh, famously he has to confront the the Sphinx and the riddle of the Sphinx. Mm-hmm. And then uh, what city is it? Uh, he's Corinth and Thebes. Corinth so, and Thebes, okay. Uh, yeah, he, yeah. So he starts in Corinth and then he goes to And then to it goes Thebes, to Thebes, correct. Yeah. Uh, fact checked us there, internet, in case we have that wrong or backwards. But he ends up going to a very prominent Greek city-state, overthrowing the king, not knowing that it's his father, and marrying the king's widow, not knowing that's his mother. Yeah, just a little clarification. He is, um, so he's born, or he is, he's raised in Corinth, um, and then he uh, hears this prophecy uh, and then decides he's going to go against it. So he travels to Thebes on the way. He meets a traveler, kills that traveler in combat, doesn't know it's the king in disguise. So that's how that happens. Oh, right. Then he Thank you. Ends yeah. up in Thebes and marries Jocasta, who is the widow of the king that he's killed. He has no idea that Rewind, when he was a baby, his parents actually abandon him on a mountain with his feet bound together, which is uh, how he gets his name. Oedipus means swollen foot in the Greek. Um, And he was actually rescued by the couple from Corinth. Um, And one little note, just a little throwback to episode one villainy. His mother's name is also Merope, uh, who was one of the Pleiades, but she's, uh, she's named in that tradition. And that is also the mother of Voldemort. So we talked about her a lot in, uh, it's all connected in at the Midnight one. Myth. It yeah. is all connected. That's, some, like great, that's yeah. some great Oedipus knowledge there. Isn't that wonderful? So I think the thing that is really interesting when we think of the question, does Oedipus have free will? The answer is he does not. Right. And he exacerbates his condition by trying to outwit 
destiny by trying to subvert fate. And that's really the, uh, that's kind of the message that sinks through this piece is like, you can't, you can't outrun your fate. Yeah. You can't do it. And you know, you really think about it and why he's such a, a lasting tragic hero who wouldn't try to change your fate if you heard that's what your oh fate my was? God, yeah. You'd be like, I'm not going to kill my father and marry my mother. That's absolute. I'm going to do right. everything in my power. If someone's telling me that's my fate, I'm going to do something else. Unbeknownst to him, his choice to circumnavigate around the prophecy is what solidifies the prophecy as being true. Right. So there is an element of choice there. So he does make the choice to say, okay, I'm going to leave Corneth. But that is the actual journey by which he ends up then sealing this just this horrible, horrible story. Yeah, it's really it's it's a true Greek tragedy. He he loses everything. He hits rock bottom uh, to to cite another episode that we uh, we explored. Um, he he really does lose lose everything, and he banishes himself. He actually pokes out his yeah, eyes and banishes himself, yeah. which. God, just another detail that I love because he is confronted by Tiresias, the blind prophet, uh, who really brings this knowledge to him. And in discovering that horrible truth, he blinds himself. And Tiresias says to him when he is now king of Thebes, married his mother, having children with his mother, but he doesn't realize it. I think if I remember correctly, um, the, the blind prophet comes to him and says, it is you who are blind. Oedipus, because he doesn't even realize that he has lived out this prophecy. Mm, yeah. Tiresias is yeah. also a great character who we will follow again uh, through the Odyssey. We'll see him again. He's fascinating. A uh, lot of stuff to talk about with him in the future. Right. And it's important to realize that, you know, it's Oedipus makes a choice, yet it fulfills his destiny. And these things may sound to our sort of modern educated uh, you know, intellectual paradigms, uh, they, they sound mutually exclusive, meaning that Oedipus can't make a choice and fulfill his prophecy. He should have no choice at all, right? In the ancient world, the idea of a mutually exclusive philosophical state wasn't a, a thing yet. You know, the idea that he could both make a choice and fulfill the prophecy simultaneously, like those things can happen and they're not contradictory ideas, uh, very prevalent in, in mythic thinking. Nice. Yeah, that's a, re a really nice little detail uh, because you'll see storytelling evolve and you'll see philosophy evolve over the coming centuries and you'll see that, you know, one thing being the knowable truth means another thing can't be the knowable truth. Right. So, but fundamentally, Oedipus didn't really have too much of a choice. In trying to evade the prophecy, he sealed his doom. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, anything else to say about Oedipus? Do we move on to the next one? I say let's move on, uh, and we'll we'll revisit a little later when we wrap it up. So I'm uh, going to need to rely on you because you are much more knowledgeable about the next story than myself. Um, we're going to move into another story about prophecy. Yeah, but we're going to skip ahead a few hundred years to the Middle Ages. Yeah, um, and to a little fellow named uh, William Shakespeare, I think is how it's pronounced. Yeah. Is that, is that he, his name? I think so. Shakespeare, right? I, I got that right. If I got that wrong, internet, let me know. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about Macbeth. <coughs> oh, I just cursed you. Yeah, I had to cough. I? Yeah. Um, 
It's okay that we're saying it here because we're not inside of a theater, but ladies and gentlemen, just a PSA, if you're inside of a theater and you speak the M word, somebody might have you go outside, spin around, throw some salt over your shoulder and curse really loudly just to get rid of the, uh, the, the bad sort of bad juju that you've put on the place. From saying Macbeth, that actually happens? Yeah, there's a curse. Because you work Macbeth. in theater. Oh, yeah. wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a cursed play. Well, yeah, it's definitely a cursed play. I don't disagree <laughs> there. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's cursed. Uh, but yeah, if you are familiar with Macbeth, you know that it deals very heavily with prophecy. Uh, one of the first things that we see, uh, I believe in this, the third scene of Act One, uh, Macbeth, who has uh, succeeded in battle, comes upon three witches. Uh, and it's very important that they're three witches. Uh, they draw a very clear line to uh, the Greek fates. Um, so having three and having them be women, it's a very, uh, kind of obvious connection there. The fates who were, yeah. Can we, Paul, can you uh, dive in? Give us the, uh, the Wikipedia page on the fates. Yeah. If you've seen the, uh, we've cited it before the extremely accurate Hercules, the Disney Hercules, then you've seen the fates. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, they actually do like kind of an okay job with the fates. You, you picture three women. Um, one is the. Uh, the spinner of the thread of life. So imagine every mortal life uh, has a, a length of thread that represents the length of their life uh, and the, their destiny. So we have one who spins that thread, then we have one who actually measures the thread and decides how long it's going to be, and then we have a third one who cuts it. And these three, um, these three fates are the embodiment of all knowledge on everyone's life, right? Yeah, uh, of mortal life. Yeah. And mortal destiny. Right. Um, and hence, we have the three fates, and I think it's not by accident that we have the three witches. Right. Um, so Macbeth comes upon these three witches, and they impart on him a prophecy. And that prophecy says, okay, Macbeth has this uh, title, he's the Thane of Gloms, and they say, hail to thee, Thane of Cawdor. And he's like, what? I'm not the Thane of Cawdor. Thane of Cawdor's over there. And Thane, if I recall correctly, just means like you're the Lord, right? Something like that. I'm not you're too powerful, steeped in the politics wealthy, of... Uh, land, landowner of yeah, Danish. Scotland, but yeah, it's, Scotland. It was Scotland, okay. Denmark is Hamlet. You're, it's Ooh, okay. you schooled me. Burned. You're Burned. Okay. Ooh, it got cold in here. It's okay. Something's rotten <laughs> in Denmark. Ooh, I see what you did. <laughs> anyway... So they say, yeah, hail to the Thane of Cawdor. He says, I'm not the Thane of Cawdor. He doesn't actually say it. He's just thinking this. And then they say, hail Macbeth, who shall be king hereafter. So they prophesy that he is not only going to get a promotion, but he's going to become the king of Scotland, uh, which is huge and crazy. And it's just three witches in the wood. Right. And just saying these crazy things. But then directly afterward... Uh, Macbeth finds out that the Thane of Cawdor uh, either betrayed them or was killed in battle. Forgive me. He's out um, of the way. He, he's he doesn't out of matter. The way and yeah, he, he's gone. He becomes named Thane of Cawdor. So the first prophecy has already been fulfilled. That's a pretty good evidence. You're like, okay, like, I oh. I wasn't really going to believe these three crazy witches, but now that I'm the Thane of Cawdor, yeah, guess I'm probably going to be king. Yeah. Now. He acts pretty quickly in uh, filling his wife in on this. Uh, and Lady Macbeth really, really buys in. 
Uh, she's she's like, just like, it's good to be the like, queen. It's good to be the queen. So I um, like the idea of you being the king. Yeah, and she's a very interesting character, but she is definitely the, uh, everyone will say her fatal flaw is ambition, uh, and that she really is the spur in Macbeth's side because he's kind of a wishy-washy, like he's a great soldier, but he is not as ambitious as she is. Right, he's like, it's cool being a thane, and I, I like to go out there, and I'm going to kill the enemies, and when I'm done, I'm going to eat mead and, and drink mead, or no, eat drink mead and eat Never mind. Mead I, and meat. Yes, thank you. Wow. Wow. I don't know why that was so hard for me. It, it literally stopped my brain. <laughs> Just stopped. Maybe because we're drinking wine. <laughs> um, but yeah, Lady Macbeth really decides to act upon this. And it's uh, uh, she and her husband conspire to kill Duncan, who is the king of Scotland, who's going to spend a night in their house. Just really messed up if you kill somebody when they're your guest. Like that goes against like so many generations and and centuries of uh, hospitality ethics. Uh, and yeah, just don't do it. Don't kill people when they're sleeping over at your house. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, yeah. So after he's killed, Macbeth ascends to uh, to the the kingdom to the royalty. Um, and a lot of it has to do with them coming to terms with their guilt. He actually encounters another prophecy later in the play uh, where the witches come upon him again, and they say, yeah, you're going to be king, but you're not going to have any heirs. Your line ends with you, but Banquo is going to have, you know, a bunch of uh, sons in his line who become king, and Banquo is kind of uh, Macbeth's war buddy. Uh, they also prophesy to him that he should beware the Thane of Fife. He should be really careful when dealing with Macduff, who's another character. Uh, but then they're like, don't worry about it, though, because nobody can kill you who is born of woman. And Macbeth's like, well, everybody is born of woman, so I can't be defeated. Uh, they also say, you shall never vanquished be until Great Burnham Wood uh, comes to Dunsinane. So they say you're not going to get killed until the literal trees get up and walk towards you. Right. And there are no, there are no ends in Macbeth. Yeah. And that he, can, that can store right. Isengard. Yeah. And he takes a lot of this to mean he is invincible. Yeah. But it's all, it's all very strange. And he's like, how, how do I not have a line after this? How do I, uh, how do I stop Banquo from really usurping my throne and having his children take over for me and, and tarnishing my legacy as king? Uh, so he takes a lot of action based on this to try and destroy Banquo's line and uh, try and set things up for himself. And he really does become very proud and think that he's going to live forever. Then, of course, in this final battle... He's become, you know, a usurper and a tyrant and people hate him and he's just a horrible murderer. So in this final battle, the soldiers who were coming to rise against him actually cut down the branches of Burnham Wood and walked towards him holding the branches to disguise themselves. So it looks like a forest has gotten up and is coming towards him. Yeah. And in his final showdown with Macduff, uh, he says, oh, yeah, you know what? No man of woman born can harm me. It's been prophesied, and everything else the prophecy has said has come true, so why not this? And then Macduff says, 
basically I was a C-section. I was from my mother's womb untimely ripped. And that's kind of the nail in the coffin. And he, he succeeds in, in, uh, unseating the, uh, the usurper. So it's a, Ooh, there's so yeah. much to talk about. There's a lot with to unpack, but uh, it really is. It's one of the coolest stories, and oh, one, it's so metal. Yeah, and it's it's one of the the few things that I was tasked to read in high school that I actually read was just like this is amazing. Yeah, and it's it's not my favorite Shakespeare play, but like, it's it's so cool. Like it's so cool. It's got witches. It's got that scene with the porter. Oh my god, just a great play. Yeah. So, I mean, we could probably do an entire podcast just on Macbeth alone mm, and mm-hmm. instances of Macbeth in storytelling and Macbethisms and Lady M and Lady Macbeth and just how how fundamental that story is to our current modern storytelling. Uh in the vein of prophecy, what I think is so interesting um you know, do we really know if these witches know the future? Right. We don't really know that. Like in Oedipus, uh, we assume that the Oracle of Delphi knows the future. And it right? is proven to us in the end that she's infallible, that the that the prophecy is infallible. But what's so crazy about the Macbeth prophecy is, you know, he gets one little bit of confirmation and then they take on this horrible... Uh, reign of terror between right. him and his wife they they do the unthinkable they murder their king when he's sleeping in their beds and they murder children and they they have people go out and and rape women and it's just it's it's horrifying the things that they do for power because they got a little kernel from these witches and the other question really that that sticks in your mind when you read that play is what if he hadn't heard that prophecy? Because the idea of prophecy and the idea of destiny is that there is a set path and the future is determined, that your life is not yours and your choices are not your own. But the choices that they make are a direct result of the prophecy that they hear. So imagine they never heard it. Right. Would Lady M still have had that thing kind of stick in her mind and say, okay, let's go for this because we got some confirmation from some witches. And I think if we uh, remember back to the matrix, there's a really awesome scene where in Neo, he goes to talk to the Oracle there. And uh, she says, don't worry about the vase. And he goes, what vase? And then he knocks over the Mm. vase as it shatters. And he goes, Oh, I'm sorry. She's like, Oh, I said, don't worry about it. But what will really bother you is if I hadn't said anything, would you have still broken it? Would you have still broken it? And it's the same flirtation. Yeah. Yeah. With, with is, is there an actual prophecy or has it become the self-fulfilling prophecy? Now that I have chased this tragic flaw, which is my ambition as I Macbeth, I've sealed my doom because I'm rising above my station and I'm doing terrible things, which means terrible things will then come back to haunt me. Yeah. And, um, and if he had never heard the prophecy, presumably in this story, it wouldn't be that interesting, but he'd go on and be a Thane and probably a pretty good Thane, right? Yeah, he'd probably be a great Thane. He, he's, uh, he's got the milk of human kindness, if you will. And I think the, the thing that makes Macbeth as a tragic hero so interesting and so universal is that we see his undoing. Um, and we correlate that directly to his actions and his choices and Lady Macbeth's actions and choices. Right. It's not this prophecy that looms. So 
Unlike Oedipus, who says, oh man, there's a prophecy about me. I need to do something different. Too bad, dude. This is this is it. Yeah. Oedipus they hear the is, prophecy and they're like, oh, I think I like that. Oedipus's tragedy is done unto him. Uh, and it is it is all the more tragic because we have seen a great soul who is a good king, who is beloved by his people, who who has a, a sensitive heart and does not want to do a terrible thing. We see him torn down by the the wickedness that is fate. And Macbeth is someone who we see torn down by the wickedness of his own ambition and his own black soul that is damaged by doing this horrible deed. Right. And the moral of the story, you know, in ancient Greece and this ancient Greek tragedy is that, uh, you know, we are nothing compared to the gods and our suffering is nothing. And it reflects their view of the the world and their view of religion and their view of, of that the gods are these group of personified, petty, angry, manipulative, because this is the world the ancient Greek is interacting with. It's hostile. It's threatening an earthquake happens and you don't understand why and suddenly half of your city is destroyed. That's because Poseidon is really ticked off, you know, and you're like, man, we, we angered Poseidon. Whereas we flash forward now into the high middle ages and time of Shakespeare, the idea that a individual actor can be responsible for their own tragedy um, can cause this. And I think separates it from the space of the prophecy and starts to put it more into, into the human drama. individualism yeah, and, and individual free will. And we are seeing a more complex relationship to, uh, to destiny and to free will develop in storytelling. And uh, we're going to see it become a little more complex as well when we move forward to our next story. Uh, one thing I just want to throw in about Macbeth before we move Ooh, on. A boomerang. We have, we have our first boomerang. A boomerang. Uh, so Im- imagining that, In the universe of Macbeth, in the Scotland of Macbeth, we truly do have supernatural creatures who can see the future and who can determine the future. Uh, The end of the play is not a happy ending in any kind of way, and we are set up for more intrigue and more corruption and more death and murder. Uh, And what I'm talking about is... uh, really a, a trope of Shakespeare. He does it a lot in his plays. He will undercut the ending that um, often will seem like things are wrapped up nicely, but he throws a little, uh, he throws a boomerang at you. Right. And that's that the final uh, prophecy of the witches that hasn't come true yet is that uh, Banquo's children will become kings of this Scotland. Uh, at the end of the play, we see Malcolm, who is uh, the, the king who was slaughtered by Macbeth. We see Malcolm, who is his son, uh, crowned king of Scotland, and we wonder, where's Banquo's son? So if that prophecy really is destined to come true, this is a cycle that's going to repeat itself again and again. Or the prophecy was BS the entire time. I like that interpretation as well. Or, so there's there's two ways to look at it. One is, is Shakespeare making a broader point about medieval politics and its brutalness and its perpetuating... Um, you know, making a sort of uh, a mockery of Machiavellian medieval thought and politics. If you don't know who Machiavelli is, Italian writer wrote a thing called The Prince, the Prince yeah. which is all about when you are in power, do everything you can to consolidate and keep your power. You lie, cheat, steal. You Cersei Lannister. 
in you know to play right. like she's a Machiavellian ruler. You know, if uh, if you have to kill a whole bunch of your citizens because that's what you need to do to make yourself uh, seem like a better prince, then you do it. Woof. And maybe there is a play on the actual these the self self fulfilling prophecy is that this cycle of just bunch of ambitious landowning lords fighting for their own power will always just continue this cycle or the prophecy is in and of itself not true. The rightful heir to the throne is there and now it's up to his choices and what he Mm. does with his power to secure a either to either be a good king or another Macbeth. And what's interesting about that is it shows the uh, fragility of the of the ambitious mind, you know, a little bit of poison, a drop of poison in, in their ear to, to take from Hamlet, a drop of an idea, just the seed of an idea can really multiply into something, uh, really terrifying. Right. And I think there is a lesson too of, you know, how much ambition should one even have when you, when you think about the moral of Macbeth, what is the point when you should be content? If you're already a great warrior and you're already a thane of a powerful uh, Scottish noble, like whatever, that, that you're a powerful Scottish noble, so you're an, an awesome thane, you're an awesome soldier, you've got a banging hot wife. Do you really need to be the king too? Like, come on, man. They've had they've had some real tragedy in their past though as well. The Macbeths? Yeah. What, what, what don't I know? Uh, they definitely lost a child. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. I guess then maybe being king sounds nice if you lost a child. I, I, yeah, yeah, there's but, a lot know. of there's a lot of stuff. Anyway, uh, let's move on, shall we? Shall we yeah. to our our third? Now, the one thing that we love here at the Midnight Myth, and we're not going to skirt away from it. We love popular culture. We do. We yeah. love. We go to the movies. We read comic books. Like we love it. So we wanted to connect this to one of our favorite popular culture stories. And that is, again, we're going to reach back and cite episode one. We're going to talk a little bit about Harry Potter here at the end. Absolutely. Uh, And what's cool about this is that we can track that theme of prophecy and that evolving complex relationship to destiny and free will uh, through to one of the most popular series of our generation. Uh, So a lot of the themes that really resonate through Oedipus and through Macbeth and through so many stories around uh, really come back. And they come into our minds as children. Now, um, if you if you don't know what I'm gonna gonna talk about, I just want to refer you back to Harry Potter and the Order of the, Order of the Phoenix, which is um, the which which number six book number five five book and number five movie. And, uh, yes, um, which is the one that that features the prophecy of the Harry Potter world, uh, and then it, it gets revisited a little bit in the final books, but it's introduced there in the Order of the Phoenix. And uh, what's cool about what's cool about the prophecy in here is that it is not new in any kind of way. Uh, there is a a prophecy featured in here that says uh, the one who is going to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches. So you've got Voldemort, who is at the height of his power. This is before Harry Potter is born. Before Harry Potter okay. is born, just before, uh, and Voldemort is at the height of his power. There is a prophecy given by Sybil Trelawney, who is the divination professor at Hogwarts, in an interview with Albus Dumbledore, where she uh, foresees the uh, the end of Voldemort. Side note, Boomerang, a Sybil was a very prominent uh, Roman 
professor, uh, an oracle, and deity in ancient Rome. Yeah, so no mistakes there, and yeah. no surprises. Very no, uh, clear connection. Yeah, why, why the 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 divination uh, instructor professor, pardon me, the divination professor is called Sybil. Yeah, uh, but she predicts that uh, a baby will be born, a, a male child is about to be born who will defeat Voldemort. And he will have some power that the Dark Lord can't imagine. Uh, and Is that the, the power of love? It's the power of love. Thank you so much for singing that. That really made me happy. Yep. Um, another part of the prophecy is that uh, one will die by the hands of the other, for neither can live while the other survives. So she gives this prediction that a baby is about to rise up and take over the empire or not take over the empire, but destroy the oppressive force, which is not something that we, um, it's, it's not something new in folklore or in culture. So there's, you know, there's Jesus, there's Moses, Perseus, there's Perseus, Hercules. Yeah. Uh, we've seen it in Norse and Scandinavian folklore. It's, it's everywhere. That idea of the one who has the power to vanquish you is about to be born uh, and there's something about like that vulnerability of uh, of an infant that uh, how could that possibly be a threat? But it's going to grow into the thing that can really defeat you. And the person that's going to be vanquished always makes a plan to get rid of said infant, and it always goes wrong. It always backfires. Um, but what's cool about the Harry Potter prophecy is it could it could have referred to one of two people, and that's Harry Potter or Neville Longbottom whose parents were both in a secret society that was attempting to uh, to destroy the Dark Lord and to help his victims, um, and were both born at the end of July. Uh, but Voldemort chooses to go after Harry Potter. And it's never really clear, right, why he picks Harry Potter. He just kind of picks Harry Potter. One of the things that uh, that is in there is that and this yep. you're talking about in the books because yeah. they, they don't ever address yeah, that it could is, be Neville in the movies. The movie is very light on the prophecy in general. It's kind of a MacGuffin. Um, but yeah, so he, that was my Hey Siri just popped open that's there. That's really weird. And I just made it pop Stop open again. It. Okay. We're uh, professionals. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons that he goes after Harry is likely because he already feels a connection to him, and that is because uh, they're both half bloods. They have um, they have a little bit of a sort of circumstantial connection already, and so he goes after him because he feels that, and then he ends up, you know, bestowing on him this connection to his soul. That's really powerful, um, right? And so in this way, because of Voldemort's uh, slightly arbitrary, but but him at least being convinced the prophecy has to refer to Harry, he chooses Harry and thus turns Harry into the chosen one. Yeah. Yeah, and Dumbledore says he chose you and he handed you the tools that you needed to defeat him. Uh, and that refers to the power of love from his mother's sacrifice for him. That's this really old magic that protects him that refers to the fact that he actually accidentally puts a part of his soul into Harry so that he can see into his mind. Uh, but there is a heavy, heavy emphasis on the fact that one 
choice led to all of the events of this series that it's not determined necessarily by some Sybil or uh, a Pythia in, on a mountain uh, inhaling a bunch of toxic fumes and saying some things that sound like prophecies. It's determined by our actions. And this is a theme that we see uh, repeated throughout the Harry Potter series from the second that Harry Potter puts the sorting hat on his head and says, I don't want to be in Slytherin. Right, which and the sorting hats instantly... Like, oh, dude, you should be in a Slytherin. In case you don't know what the sorting hat is, it's a talking hat that sorts you. That decides you, your literally. fate, yeah. <laughs> um, and Harry says, I don't want to be in Slytherin. And he gets into Gryffindor, thinks for so long that he was supposed to be in Slytherin and that he somehow tricked the hat. And Dumbledore says, but Harry, you understand that it's not just who what's in our head, but our choices that determine how our lives turn out. Uh, and, and this, we, we continue to see throughout that series and it ha it's, it's reflected on Voldemort's part as well. His choices determine the outcome of his life. He could choose a different path, but he doesn't. Uh, and so we yeah. see that, that complexity of that relationship to fate and to prophecy where it's, this prophecy is a cherished thing that Voldemort really, uh, really tries to gain a lot of strength from who says I, I can use this to uh, determine who is supposed to be able to defeat me and I'll use it to find him and destroy him. But what really makes Harry the hero of this is that he makes the right choices, right? That he chooses to take the burden of fighting Voldemort and that he chooses to take the fact that he and Voldemort have this sort of spiritual and, and psychic connection. Yeah. And he uses that to fight him. Yeah. And he uses that to become and to make consciously the idea that he is the chosen one. I think when we look at the Harry Potter prophecy, um, when we look at that, I think the 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 fundamental thing I, I see there is that the prophecy only has this the power if you believe in it. Yeah. It on its face value had no power at all. If Voldemort had chosen counterfactually to just ignore the prophecy, not go after James and Lily, and not kill Harry Potter, try to kill Harry Potter as an infinite, you have a very different universe there. Exactly. So because the prophecy meant something to Voldemort, that's what made that prophecy powerful. And that we all have the ability to shape and change our own destiny, I think is the, the point there. Yeah, and I think the Harry Potter series... Uh, fundamentally says that we live in a universe that is governed by free will and is governed by our own choices. Uh, and that's a really powerful statement when you have a series of books that includes prophecy and that includes divination. And uh, also, I think it's hilarious that, you know, in a world where you can put pieces of your soul into a cup and hide it away and that'll make you immortal, or you can fly on a broomstick, or you can, like, turn a... a, a bird into a water goblet like divination is a bridge too far like hermione in the in the third uh, book and, is and, just like no Azkaban. i don't believe that and it's like but you believe that like house elves can just send food through the ceiling i think that's an important point yeah so i don't think it's ridiculous i'm gonna i'm gonna give it's, a little pushback it's there. funny but I, I think i'm gonna agree with you but go on because uh there's no evidence in the wizarding world that divination is actually true 
Whereas you can hop on a, a broom and you can ride it, right? You, oh, can, sure. you can see that magic. Divination still requires, especially in this universe, an actor to call upon and to make that prophecy true. So there is sure. a, an argument to be made academically to say of all of the magic that we do have, we probably, if we do have free will, then we don't have the ability to know the future. Right. Cause we're now dealing in a, a now a modern setting, a modern fantasy setting in which the idea of mutual exclusivity is, is a, it's a prevalent thought. Yeah. And if Hermione knows that, Hey, I'm either, I either have free will and can make choices or I can't. Mm-hmm. And there's no middle ground. And the tea leaves determine my my whole life. And if I'm on the side that I have free will, then I'm going to laugh at divination. You know? That's a great point. Yeah. And so it, it would make sense. Now, I don't know if Hermione, you know, believes in free will or not. Like, I don't know wh- where she stands on that argument. But if she does, it would make sense in particular for that character who's such an yeah. academic to be like, ah, there's no actual... Um, you know, Evidence, veracity yeah. to to these claims. There's no fundamental truthness yeah. to them. They they're they're just false, and anyone can say that they're divining something, and that doesn't make it true. And even the prophecy itself, the language in it, it's very different from the prophecies of Oedipus and Macbeth in that it's vague. It's not specific, right? It's it's hey, they can't really survive. It's going to happen sometime around the it says the seventh month. Yeah, they say that the uh, the one who can vanquish him is going to arrive yeah. around the end of July. Yeah. Not the one that will vanquish him. Right. It doesn't you know, say like, someone is going to vanquish you. It says yeah. they have the power to vanquish you. Sure. Yeah. So it's a, it's a much vaguer divination and a much vaguer prophecy in a world where fundamentally, I think it calls into question, is there even prophecy, which I think we get to now um, the fundamental question of is there free will? And can these stories guide us? And I'm going to say that it's the it's the starting point of that debate. Yeah. You know, if you're really interested in, in reading about free will, there is just tombs and tombs of philosophy, of scientists, everything from evolutionary biologic, biological scientists. To existentialist philosophy. To existentialism. You know, there are people that, to spiritualism. You know, there's a lot of debate in Christian theology that if God's all knowing, how can we have choice that debate that idea? And how does that make sense? And does it even make sense? So I think the question of free will will not be answered by the Midnight Myth podcast. No, oh, okay. no we don't know the answer to that question. We don't know the answer. I'll tell you, I stand I, I like to think of free will. I Me don't. Too. I'm like Neo. Like, I don't like the idea that something else or someone else is pulling my strings. Yeah. I like to think my life is my own making, and that way it helps me be accountable for the things I do and don't do. Yeah. That's just kind of where I feel, but I don't know. I can't say that's true. I don't know that. Me neither, but I like I like your way of thinking. Yeah. Anything else you want to say before we move on? Uh, wow, yeah. We're probably over time again, aren't we? For sure, yeah. Yeah, we're totally over time. Um, it's a It's a really interesting debate. You know, prophecy, divination, free will, choice. And I'll just tell you guys, when you're out there and you're you're trying to to make sense of all of this, uh, I'd say it's always better to err on free will. That's Take responsibility. Me. Yeah. Yeah. That's just me. It's always it's always better to sit there and say, because sometimes things don't go out the way that they want to. And if things aren't going the way that you want to, it's not because you're cursed. You know, like none of us are cursed. 
you know, none of us has an evil spirit over us. We can go out there and we can do whatever the hell we want because America. Beautiful. To the game? Shall we play a game? This is this is going to be a good game. I'm, I'm excited. This is a fun one. Give us the rules, Laurel. All right. So every week on the Midnight Myth podcast, as you know, we're going to play a little game to have a little fun with some of these characters and situations. Uh, please play along if you want to. So if you have an answer for this, uh, tweet at us at the Midnight Myth. Visit us on Facebook. Just search the Midnight Myth podcast or drop us a line on the website, www.midnightmyth.com. The game this week. So uh, you're an epic hero. You're not a epic hero. You're the chosen one. You're the chosen one. And you have received a prophecy that you are going to vanquish your enemy and you're on your way to do it. What mythological or folklore or magical beast are you riding in on or do you want as your sidekick? And just to add another layer, you have to be specific. You can't just say, Oh, uh, a unicorn. You've got, we got to name the exact. Exact unicorn. Yeah, the exact one. Uh, you, well, this is what we're going to do. When you want to play along, you don't have yeah, to Yeah, do, do whatever you want. But... If you want to tweet at us, a unicorn, that's awesome. All right. You want to um, go first? You want me to go first? You go first. I'll go first. Yeah. All right. Uh, fulfilling my prophecy, I'm riding in on the Kraken. Oh, great answer. Yeah. All right. All right. For those that may not know. What is a Kraken, and why is it awesome to ride on? is a legendary sea monster, and he pops up in a couple different types of folklore. I'm pulling mostly from the Perseus myth, the Kraken who is uh, supposed to devour Andromeda as the sacrifice, but the Kraken also pops up in a lot of Norse and Scandinavian folklore and uh, is sometimes actually thought to be the giant squid. Um, So there have been actual sightings of the Leviathan or the giant squid, um, but it's and, a sea monster. It's huge. Yeah, giant sea monster has a few different descriptions. Some of them have a beak, sometimes tentacles, sometimes it's more of a serpent. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a huge, massive, powerful sea monster that would be really good for vanquishing your enemy or helping you vanquish your enemy. And you, you, you're in a naval bo- battle then, I assume. You've got a bunch of ships yeah. and you're like, I'm going to take out the enemy armada. Right. And it's also nice that, you know, it can go places that others can't go, uh, namely under the sea. Well done. Riding in on the Kraken. That's all I got. Well, uh, I'm going to ride in on a dragon because dragons are awesome. And I'm going to pick Smog the Terrible. You're really going to pick Smog. Oh, absolutely. I was like, he's not going to pick Smog. Oh, I'm totally riding in on Smog the Terrible. I knew you were going to pick a dragon, but I thought it was going to be Drogon. Uh, yeah, so here's the thing. Drogon, to me, why I can't pick up. Drogon in the Game of Thrones universe is amazing. But if I can pick of all dragons... You want one that speaks English. I want one that can talk. The common tongue. So I want one uh, that is, like, Drogon in dragon size compared to to Smog is small. Oh, yeah. So Smog is much, much, much bigger. Yeah. Um, I want to ride in on a red dragon. Drogon is a little like dark reddish blackish. Like he's more like, you know, like I want a bright red, evil, badass looking dragon that will be able to, uh, you know, tell stories of my victories. Interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Smog the terrible. I'm vanquishing my enemies. Now, I wouldn't want to be a bad guy because I'm the epic hero. So I presumably have tamed Smog in right. some way or some capacity. 
maybe I have like a spell or a charm that I can control him. Something yeah. like that. But yeah, I'm riding in on smog and I am burning the hell out of everyone with dragon fire. Yeah. The only reservations I would ever have about smog, and you could probably push back on this pretty simply because he is a, a destroyer and he does, you know, he does get out there, but he spends a good deal of time on that mountain of gold and generally gold dragons, like dragons who, who guard treasure are a little more lethargic. Uh, but I think Smog's track record has has really said that he is a he's a fighter. So oh, I yeah. think that's good. Listen, I'm not worried like, about vanquishing choose, my enemies with Smog. Yeah, I'm you not wouldn't want to choose Fafnir from no. Norse myth or anything. No. You wouldn't want to choose like the yeah. dragon who guards a bunch of virgins. But yeah. yeah, I would want Smog the Terrible, and he got that pile of gold by killing everyone that got exactly. Smog. Yeah. yeah. So it's a I, good choice. I would definitely pick Smog. I had some some runner ups. It'd be like kind of cool to charge into battle with a Minotaur. Yeah, like I that, love the Minotaur. Yeah, you know, that that was um, one that I thought that that would be fun. But I'm like, if you have the opportunity to ride any magical creature into battle, and you don't choose something like the Kraken or or Smog, yeah. I, I just thought, think you're doing it wrong. My I opinion about Pegasus too, because he's so incredibly loyal and a really amazing uh, amazing horse. Sure, With really wings, good but, from getting from point A to point B. But yeah, come on, but, Kraken. Yeah, you, you, you're going to ride the Kraken into battle? Forget it. Yeah, forget Over. about it. Done. If if any enemies don't run away, they're, they're just going to instantly slaughter them. Right. So we would love to hear your responses to this one. It's kind of a fun one. You get to be really creative. Uh, even invent your own monster if you want to, but we would love to hear totally. specifics. Um, oh, just a shout out. We now have six reviews on iTunes. Hey, look at six. that. Six. Thank uh, you so much to the people that reviewed us. Uh, if you like the show, let us know. Give us that iTunes review. That'd yeah, be awesome. It really helps us get out there. We're also uh, just getting approval for Stitcher. So check us out on Stitcher and tell your friends who don't have uh, iOS devices that they can check us out there as well because you can kind of listen to that anywhere. Oh, last, I have a little bit of a correction from last week's episode. Oh, please go for it. Last week's episode, I mentioned that Nebuchadnezzar was a king that sacked Babylon. He is actually a Babylonian king who sacked Jerusalem. You're so, fired. Well, it's an important thing to not mess up. You are so fired. Yeah, so I apologize uh, for those of you that heard that episode, we haven't aired it yet, so I imagine people will hear it and probably hit me up that I got that wrong. In particular, that's uh, a very sensitive issue to uh, people who are Jewish. Yeah. So I apologize if my misspeaking last week offended any of our Jewish brothers and sisters. So uh, Derek is fired, so join me uh, alone in the in the chair next week uh, for a little more talk. I'm about writing it on smog, and I'm going to kill your Kraken. Get out of here. I'm totally smog is going to burn your crack into the ground. And then I'm going to be the you only can't epic burn, hero. You can't burn water. Uh, Dragonfire can burn anything. Okay. Anything. Right. Any last words, my friend? Till next time, be kind. Be kind. <laughs>